Welcome back. This is your host Marvin speaking, and I'd like to welcome you to all talks of the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, Maternal and Neonatal Sepsis. The WSC Spotlight is a joint project by the World Health Organization and the Global Sepsis Alliance, and we will make all talks of the Congress available here, starting with the opening session, Sepsis, the challenges of medicine, politics and society. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Dr. Tex Kassoon from Canada, Vice Chair of the Global Sepsis Alliance, to get us started. On behalf of the World Health Organization and the Global Sepsis Alliance and my co-chair, Giancarlo uh, Sousa, I would like to welcome uh, you to the World Sepsis Conference Spotlight on Maternal and Neonatal Sepsis. I am Tex Kassoon. Um, I am presently in Vancouver, and I'm very grateful to learn that we have colleagues from over 135 countries and over 7,000 registrants for this conference. We are very grateful for this. We have a very exciting program that is divided into four sections. The first, the challenges of medicine, politics, and society, of which you are joining now. Uh, then there is one on neonatal sepsis, maternal sepsis, and then updates on sepsis, which would include a variety of uh, topics, including quality uh, improvements, survivorships, diagnostics, therapies, antimicrobials, stewardship, etc. Uh, for this session, we have six talks. Um, uh, this session is uh, the challenges of medicine, politics, and society. Each talk will be a maximum of approximately 12 minutes, and there will be three minutes for questions um, in between. And hopefully, at the end of this session, we will have some more time for questions. Two of these presentations will be videos, uh, because uh, the speakers had competing uh, uh, sort of um, uh, meetings and could not be online. Uh, the session is very important in that, as we know, Sepsis, uh, it has been said, is both a clinical disease, a social, political, and economic disease. And when one looks at trying to decrease the burden of sepsis and we look towards the sustainable developmental goals, we see the close interrelationship uh, of many of these goals. And in fact, we will not be able to achieve uh, our aims in uh, decreasing the burden of sepsis if we do not achieve, uh, if we do not uh, address many other goals. Um, the, uh, so we will hear in this session uh, uh, issues of the sustainable development goals. We will hear prevention uh, uh, topics such as the uh, work of the Vaccine Alliance advocacy, as well as challenges in sepsis care and research in sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, also the challenges in achieving the World Health Assembly and World Health Organization sepsis resolution. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, the first speaker. Uh, who is uh, Dr. Tidros Adamon uh, Ghebreyesus. Uh, Dr. Tidros was elected as the WHO Director General for a five-year term by WHO member states at the 70th World Health Assembly on May 2017. He is the first WHO Director from the African region, um, and he also served as WHO Chief Technical and Administrative Officer from this region. Uh, we are very delighted to have Dr. Tedros in that one of his key priorities for the World Health Organization has, is women's, children, and adolescent health and its impacts and health impacts on the environment and environmental change. 
Uh, Dr. Tedros also served as the Ethiopia Minister of Health from 2005 to 2012, where he led a comprehensive reform of the country health system. And beyond Ethiopia, he has been involved in many um, global leadership projects, such as maternal and child health and malaria and HIV and AIDS. He holds a doctorate, a PhD in community health from the University of um, Nottingham and a Master of Science in Immunology and Infectious Disease from University of London. Uh, Dr. Tedros could not be here in person, but will be addressing us via a video and giving us his opening remarks. I hand it over now uh, for Dr. Tedros's remarks. Dear colleagues and friends, greetings from the World Health Organization. On the eve of World Sepsis Day, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight. This online Congress is an excellent opportunity for people across the world to connect virtually to learn about sepsis. Every year, sepsis kills around 6 million people, including 1 million newborn babies. Sepsis is also one of the main causes of maternal death. It directly kills approximately 35,000 women every year and continues to an additional 100,000 maternal deaths. The tragedy is that most of these deaths could have been prevented. Overcrowded and poorly resourced health facilities put pregnant women and their babies at high risk of infection and sepsis. Unnecessary caesarean sections also increase this risk. We know that most infections can be prevented and we know what's needed to reduce the risk of sepsis. Access to clean water and sanitation, access to quality care during pregnancy and birth, responsible and timely access to the right medicines, and proper infection prevention and control in hospitals and clinics. When patients show signs of sepsis, health workers need to know how to recognize them and manage this medical emergency quickly and properly. The World Health Organization recognizes the urgent need to pay more attention to this life-threatening but not so well-known condition. In May this year, the World Health Assembly passed a resolution to address the prevention, diagnosis, and management of sepsis. This online Congress is one of the activities that WHO is spearheading as part of the global initiative on maternal and neonatal sepsis. We're also working with partners to support a large multi-country study on maternal sepsis in over 500 health facilities in 54 countries. We hope that the results of this study will improve our understanding of the prevalence of maternal sepsis and how it's prevented and treated around the world. I would like to thank all of WHO's dedicated partners for contributing to this initiative and the study. Today, we have thousands of passionate participants online from over 140 countries. I would also like to thank all of you for taking time out of your busy days to participate in this important Congress. You're the ones who can make a difference to prevent so many unnecessary deaths. I wish you every success in your work. I thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this was the open message for uh, Dr. Tedros, who uh, unfortunately, um, uh, cannot uh, be here live. Uh, the second speaker that I'd like to introduce to you is Dr. Bernadetta Alagranzi from the WHO uh, in uh, 
Switzerland. Dr. Bernadette Allegranzi is a specialist in infectious disease, tropical medicine, infection con prevention and control, and hospital epidemiology. She currently works at a WHO uh, headquarters and is a coordinator for uh, infection prevention control global unit, including the Clean Care is Safer Care program. Dr. Allegranzi uh, is also a professor and uh, an official Italian, has an official Italian professorship and is adjunct professor uh, to the Institute of Global Health at the Faculty of Medicine, University of Geneva, Switzerland. She is currently involved in the leadership on the WHO Ebola response in the field of uh, invention, prevention, and control, and supervises in, in, uh, infection prevention and control activities in Sierra Leone and Guinea. She has experience in clinical management of infectious disease and tropical medicine, and is the author or co-author of over 150 scientific publications. She will speak to us on sepsis and the United Nations Sustainable Developmental Goals. I turn it up uh, over now to Dr. Allegrande. Thank you very much uh, for your kind introduction and uh, uh, good morning, uh, good afternoon and evening to everyone online. Uh, thank you for inviting me in this very important uh, Congress. So um, my task today is, is to link uh, the topic of sepsis with uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. Um, and I would like to start by, um, however, um, highlighting a very important thing, which is that uh, WHA this year um, voted and approved a resolution on sepsis, as I'm sure all of you know. Uh, this new resolution uh, urges uh, member states uh, to include prevention, diagnosis and treatment of sepsis in national health systems strengthening in the community and healthcare settings, and also to focus on infection prevention and control, antimicrobial resistance reduction and promotion of appropriate use of antimicrobials in the context of sepsis management diagnosis and managing sepsis uh, in health emergencies, also to focus on public awareness of the risk of progression to sepsis from infectious diseases, uh, and also advocacy, including supporting existing activities held every year on 13th of September, which is what we are doing now. It also urges uh, member states to focus on training of healthcare professionals, research in the context of sepsis, uh, uh, sepsis detection uh, using international classification of disease system. You can find an insightful interpretation and expansion of these priorities uh, recommended to member states in a paper recently uh, published by uh, Professor uh, Rainer Conrad, uh, who, uh, together with others uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, in the resolution, uh, uh, member states uh, also asked WHO to, learn, to lead on a number of activities that we will discuss later. Now, in order to position uh, the fight against, against sepsis in the context of SDGs, firstly, we need to understand what is sepsis and how it contributes to the global burden of disease and causes of death. Uh, sepsis is a life-threatening 
organ dysfunction resulting from infection, which can progress to a more severe condition than manifests with profound circulatory, cellular, and metabolic abnormalities associated with a greater risk of mortality. Most, if not all, infections can lead to sepsis and or to sepsis shock. And this is why sepsis is relevant to many leading causes of death worldwide. According to a Global Burden of Disease reports, uh, the most recent published in The Lancet in 2016, over the last 25 years, significant reductions in mortality rates due to communicable diseases were achieved. In 2015, uh, the most frequent causes of death uh, were indeed not anymore infectious diseases, but ischemic heart disease and cere cerebrovascular diseases. Um, but uh, RTIs uh, were still at the third position and diarrhea at the fifth position among leading causes of death. Among these causes of death, Neonatal sepsis is also mentioned, and it remains at the 16th leading cause of total deaths worldwide. Therefore, if we focus more on global estimates of sepsis burden, um, we learned uh, from an important paper published in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine in 2016, that, uh, as I said, global estimates indicate that about 30, 31 million sepsis and 90 million severe sepsis cases occur every year uh, with potentially 5.3 million deaths annually. The hospital mortality associated with sepsis on average was found to be around 17% and for severe sepsis, uh, as high as 26% uh, uh, on average again. Uh, data are available for high-income countries, such as uh, USA, where more than 1 million patients uh, were hospitalized with sepsis in 28, and this, uh, in the, in this in the incidence was found to be increased by 70% uh, compared to 2,000. There are also important financial uh, implications with uh, um, estimated about uh, more than 24 billion US dollars spent due to uh, consequences of sepsis in the US. We were saying earlier that sepsis can is the condition uh, to which uh, a high number of infectious diseases uh, evolve. Therefore, if we consider that in neonates, infectious diseases are accounted for more than 50% of all deaths, uh, and in, including in children less than five years. Uh, we can understand what is the, the burden of sepsis. And indeed, hospital mortality due to sepsis in pediatrics uh, uh, was estimated around uh, 25%. Infections are also the third direct leading cause of maternal mortality, and sepsis is a contributing cause uh, in many other maternal deaths every year. 
Um, finally, I would like to also highlight the burden of sepsis uh, among healthcare-associated infections because normally we uh, are very focused on community-acquired sepsis, but globally, hundreds of millions of people every year are affected by healthcare-associated infections. This uh, corresponds on average to one in 10 patients. We know that even in high-income countries, uh, there are reports where in ICU up to 30% of patients are affected at least by one of these healthcare-associated infections. And in developing countries, the frequency is at least two, three, from two, three, two, three times higher. Among hospital-born babies, infections are responsible for from 4 to 56% of all causes of death in the neonatal uh, period. And in Africa, for instance, regarding maternal care, up to 20% of women who have delivered through cesarean section get a wound infection. So this is also a relevant issue in terms of infections leading to sepsis. So, according to these data, sepsis represents an important burden of disease worldwide, and this is the first crucial reason why it is relevant to SDGs. So, focusing now on SDGs, uh, we know that in 2015, the UN General Assembly adopted the new development agenda uh, entitled Transforming Our World, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. This new agenda focuses on a broad range of economic, social, environmental objectives or dimensions and offers the prospect of more peaceful and inclusive societies. In the SDG framework, health both contributes to and benefits from all other, all other goals. But in particular, SDG 3 uh, is the specific goal for health, and it includes 13 targets and 42 indicators. Um, the health goal is broad, and it states ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. There are many linkages between health goal and other goals and targets. The most relevant is, for us is SDG 6, the linkage to SDG 6, preventing disease to save water and sanitation for all. As mentioned before, when citing the sepsis epidemiology data, sepsis is a very relevant cause of maternal mortality and death in neonates and children less than, than five years. And thus, uh, fighting against sepsis will clearly contribute to the achievements of SDGs 3.1 and 3.2 that are related to reducing global maternal mortality ratio and uh, ending preventable deaths of newborns and children under five years of age. For these two SDGs, uh, maternal, neonatal, and less than five years mortality are the indicators, and sepsis is clearly measured among the causes leading to these mortalities. Sepsis can also be the ultimate 
clinical condition leading to death in patients affected by HIV, TB, malaria, and other infectious diseases that are the target of SDG 3.3. But unfortunately, sepsis is not usually recorded among the causes of death in these patients and thus not captured as part of the indicators for SDG 3.3. Even if less directly, sepsis is relevant also for other health targets in SDG 3. Indeed, prevention and or appropriate uh, diagnosis and management of sepsis are linked to the achievement of adequate vaccine coverage, quality universal health coverage, international health regulation capacity and emergency preparedness, and water and sanitation services, and vice versa. However, again, sepsis monitoring does not contribute to the measurement of the core indicators of these SDGs that I mentioned uh, uh, within SDG 3, which are um, 3.8, 3.9, 3B, and 3D related to the topics I mentioned. So now, um, considering uh, monitoring of the progress in terms of burden of disease and therefore also SDGs, and in particular SDG 3.3, uh, by reviewing progress from uh, 2005 to 2015, according to the 2015 Global of, the, uh, Global of Burden of Disease report, as I said earlier, uh, marked reductions in deaths uh, due to communicable diseases uh, were uh, observed, and these uh, gains were largely attributable to decreases in mortalities uh, due to HIV, AIDS, malaria, uh, neonatal uh, and, and maternal disorders, including a remarkable 30% decrease in maternal sepsis. Unfortunately, neonatal sepsis was one of the exceptions, which had, albeit uh, not significant, um, increased in deaths since 2005. Neonatal sepsis also remains the fifth leading cause of years of life lost uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, where communicable maternal neonatal and nutritional disease caused the most uh, years of life lost in the 2015 report. We also know that low respiratory tract infections uh, is always among the top 10 causes of years life lost in all regions, in each region. But again, sepsis is not accounted for as a consequence of uh, low respiratory tract infections among reported uh, uh, diseases. Um, these data, part of this data, are um, actually uh, displayed and reported in, in other papers, which I would like to mention, such as the WHO um, World Health Statistics Report uh, 2017, just issued in May, which focuses on the health and health-related SDGs and associated targets uh, by bringing together data on a wide range of relevant SDG indicators as available uh, from uh, 2015 until early 2017. 
whereas this report provides encouraging confirmation of improvement that countries have made on collecting vital statistics and monitoring progress towards SDG, it does not yet report any information on progress in reducing sepsis mortality. Another recent WHO publication that I would like to highlight is the one on WHO estimates on the financial investments needed to strengthen health systems in order to reach health targets in the SDGs uh, by 2030. Uh, there, there are interest uh, uh, evaluations uh, in terms of what is needed uh, to uh, strengthen health systems uh, and also to progress, uh, for instance, uh, in vaccine or prevention and treat treatment of specific diseases. All these uh, evaluations are interesting in light of our uh, discussions uh, related to uh, reducing uh, sepsis occurrence and mortality. Um, finally, I would like to bring us back to uh, the WHO resolution um, on sepsis and to um, the aspects related to uh, WHO's mandate um, and objectives, which are to develop WHO guidance um, uh, related to sepsis prevention and management, uh, draw attention to the public health impact of sepsis through global reports uh, and other means, to support member states in their efforts uh, to fight against sepsis and to collaborate with other organizations, uh, partners, international organizations and stakeholders uh, to achieve these goals in the field of sepsis altogether. Um, and therefore, I would like to highlight uh, that a coordination mechanism exists uh, at WHO uh, regarding uh, the implementation of uh, sepsis uh, resolution with several programs involved in the field of reproductive health and research, maternal newborn, child and adolescent health, health patient safety and infection prevention and control, emergencies and antimicrobial resistance. Uh, we are all united to fight against sepsis uh, um, together with stakeholders, uh, including all of you. Uh, one of uh, the most important achievements nowadays of this, these activities is actually the Global Maternal and Neonatal Sepsis Initiative, which uh, is a collaboration among many organizations, as you know, uh, and is um, behind the organization of this important online Congress. And therefore, I would like to congratulate with this initiative and all of you. Uh, I thank you very much for your attention and I would like to uh, make your my best wishes to all of you for September 13th activities and celebrations. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Bernadetta, for this uh, very uh, uh, informative presentation. Um, I would like to introduce the next speaker uh, who will be giving us um, a presentation via video conferencing. Uh, the speaker is uh, Dr. Uh, Anuradha Gupta, who is Deputy CEO of uh, the Global Alliance for Va Vaccine uh, Initiative and the Vaccine Alliance. Uh, 
Dr. Gupta, since joining Gavi in 2015, has been leading efforts to better integrate support to countries within the Gavi strategy. Uh, prior to joining Gavi, uh, Dr. Gupta served as an additional secretary at the Indian Ministry of Health and mission director of the National Health Mission, where she ran the largest and possibly most complex public health program in the world with an annual budget of uh, uh, 3.5 billion US. She is a very passionate and influential advocate for women, uh, young girls, and children. Dr. Gupta has assumed an important role in a number of global health initiatives, including co-chairing the Partnership for Maternal, Neonatal, and Child Health, serving as a member of the steering committee of the Child Survival Call for Action at the invitation of, the, uh, of Secretary of State Clinton, co-chairing the stakeholder group for the London Family Plan Summit 2020 and as a member of the Family Planning 2020 Reference Group. Dr. Gupta is going to address um, us on the topic of uh, over 7 million childhood deaths averted, uh, progress report by the Vaccine Alliance. I'll turn it off over now to Dr. Gupta. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let me first thank uh, the organizers for including Gavi as a part of the World uh, Sepsis Conference uh, and really give me an opportunity to tell you all a very exciting story. A lot of great visionaries and thinkers and sovereign governments came together in 2000 at the WEF, the World Economic Forum, Davos, to create uh, Gavi. And their vision was to address inequities and disparities that were so glaring, but that were so real in terms of access to new life-saving vaccines that were becoming increasingly available in rich countries of the world and yet were not reaching poor countries because they were simply too expensive. 12 million children were dying every year and 25% of those deaths were because of vaccine-preventable diseases that could actually be prevented if only many of these vaccines could be accelerated or introduced in poor countries. And that is the vision with which Gavi was established. Gavi has a very unique model of governance. It actually includes countries as key partners in progress, vaccine manufacturers as important uh, stakeholders, sovereign donors who contribute resources for achieving the big vision that was set out, researchers and academia, uh, civil society organizations, and significantly multilateral organizations like WHO, UNICEF, and the World Bank. And together, we created an alliance which resorted to some very unprecedented innovations. One of these innovations was to introduce a new facility called the International Immunization Financing Facility, uh, commonly referred to as IFIM. This was the first ever effort to leverage capital markets to raise resources 
for a social cause like immunization. Donors made long-term pledges, 15 to 20 years, to commit resources that they could not immediately put on the table, and vaccine bonds were issued by the Alliance to raise money on capital markets, and they actually raised uh, five billion. This unprecedented innovation helped the Alliance, what I call fast-forward impact by front-loading its investments. This is something that is really a model for the rest of the world to emulate. Another very important innovation that the Alliance introduced was to actually very smartly pool and aggregate demand from 73 low-income countries that we started to work with. These countries together represent 60% of the global birth cohort and therefore actually presented a very unique opportunity to create a win-win situation for both countries as well as the vaccine manufacturing industry. The Alliance very successfully predicted a demand uh, for future vaccines and created a very transparent, hassle-free procurement uh, process, which, which was a strong invitation to the vaccine manufacturing industry to really join this partnership and drive down you know, prices. For example, HPV vaccine price uh, for Gavi uh, is four and a half dollars per dose. And you compare it with, with, with a price of more than $100 per dose in most of the rich country markets. The Alliance also worked very vigorously to diversify the base of vaccine manufacturers. So from really just five vaccine manufacturers, the number of vaccine manufacturers has now expanded to 16, with many of them in emerging markets. And this has really helped to create healthy vaccine markets where the prices are becoming increasingly more affordable, but more importantly, there is vaccine security because Alliance is really driving uh, a situation where there is no interruption of critical life-saving vaccines. Under the Gavi model, there is a very small uh, co-financing amount that every country has to pay as we work with them to introduce uh, new vaccines. For example, 20 cents uh, per dose for, for a pneumococcal vaccine or a rota vaccine or, or a HPV a vaccine, a very small amount compared to the overall price of the vaccine and yet symbolically extremely, extremely significant because the countries then start to think about the issue of financing of vaccines, uh, are encouraged to create budget lines and, and earmark resources uh, for vaccines take it to the parliament and enhance awareness about the benefits of vaccines uh, to rope in uh, parliamentarians and, and, and really start to think about much more efficient implementation of immunization programs. When Gavi started to work with these 73 countries, we had a large number of countries that were not paying for their traditional vaccines. And in fact, the payments were coming from UNICEF or other partners, but because of the increased country ownership, 
that these borders have helped to stimulate. Now we see increasingly countries stepping forward to even pay for their traditional vaccines. And this is what is true success of Gavi model, where we start to support countries, but we build true country leadership and ownership. And we see countries really starting to take full fiscal responsibility and programmatic responsibility for success of immunization. So our endeavor really has been to support uh, countries in introducing and accelerating a wide range of uh, vaccines. And many of them actually have a direct uh, connection with reducing infections which lead to sepsis. A pneumococcal, for example, is one vaccine which, which helps uh, prevent uh, sepsis. But there are other vaccines as well. Meningitis A, Hib are other vaccines that we have very successfully promoted and implemented in countries, thereby impacting uh, sepsis incidence and rates. But I must also add that there are other vaccines where a direct connection with sepsis may not be that obvious, but there is definitely a contributory connection. For example, uh, hepatitis B, uh, measles, and, and uh, um, yellow fever, you know, which, which actually in the long run would impact secondary infections that could potentially lead to sepsis. And as Gavi thinks about its new vaccine investment strategy that we refresh every five years, I'm sure there will be scope for Gavi to look at uh, many more new vaccines which would have a direct relationship and uh, with and, and impact on, on uh, sepsis. We know that 86% of children today globally are receiving DTP3, which is a tracer uh, indicator for uptake of immunization. But we also know that those 14% children who are still excluded from this post-basic uh, vaccine actually are uh, the poorest of the poor. Our definition of success is now uh, our ability to reach these missed children, children that the program is consistently missing. We recognize it is not going to be an easy task. It, it is a daunting task because for us to really address these glaring disparities and reach every child, we really need to all invest in health systems and, and delivery uh, platforms. And that requires all-round collaboration, integration, and new ways of working. So thank you very much for, uh, as I said, providing an opportunity to speak about Gavi and, and its work and the uh, tremendous results that uh, together as an alliance we have been able to achieve in, 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 as I said, the poorest countries of the world. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. That was uh, Dr. Gupta, uh, who was speaking to us via video. Now, I see there are some questions that are now coming up on the screen. Please um, uh, keep your questions coming. And at the end of uh, uh, the next few talks, we will have time for discussion. And I may have some questions interspersed if it directly related, relates to one of the, the speakers who are 
um, speaking live. The next uh, presentation will be given by uh, Dr. Ron Daniels, who is a consultant in critical care at Heart of England NHS Foundation Trust, Birmingham, England. He's a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, Royal College of Anesthetists, and on faculty of intensive care. Ron is also the chief executive of the Global Sepsis Alliance. He's also the chief executive of the United Kingdom Sepsis Trust, a registered charity with a predicted annual income of over two and a half million pounds, in which capacity he provides uh, uh, clinical advice to the NHS and the Department of Health and to the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. Ron is also founder and program director of the UK Education Initiative, uh, Survive Sepsis, and developed both the Sepsis Six Care Bundle, now in use in uh, nine or more countries. Uh, uh, he is also the initiator of the clinical concept of the red flag sepsis. Both are endorsed and recommended by the UK Royal Colleges and by the NHS. Uh, he will be addressing us on the topic of uh, nationwide uh, sepsis awareness saves lives. I hand it over now to Ron. Thanks so much, Tex, for the kind introduction, and thanks for the invitation to participate in this fantastic conference. So I'm going to talk about public awareness. I'm going to talk about the need for it, and I'm going to draw lessons from our routes toward heightened public awareness in the United Kingdom. The beauty, of course, with public awareness is although the messaging will need to be different, and in some countries it might need to be pictorial, in some countries verbal, the basis of communication saving lives can be translated across every country, be it high income or be it low middle income country. And the first and I think most important message to remember is that whilst we clinicians like to talk about statistics and studies, this is first and foremost about people. And if we're going to be designing a public awareness campaign, it's absolutely important that we realize that we have to engage with people on the ground. This is a gentleman who died on my intensive care units. And he and his wife had been together for 20 years. They had two beautiful children together. Sepsis should not have claimed this man's life. But sepsis did. And I remember as clear as it were yesterday, walking down a hospital corridor, walking towards our relative's interview room, knowing I was about to take this young woman into the interview room and tell her that her fit, strong husband wasn't coming home. And she was going to have to go home and tell their children, Tom and Emily, that daddy wasn't coming home, all from a condition she would never have heard of. We need to get inside the heads of the people receiving these messages. We need to also think of scale. This is a premiership football stadium in the United Kingdom. And we can see that breast cancer in the United Kingdom claims somewhere around 11,000 lives and bowel cancer claims somewhere around 16,000 lives. Sepsis, we conservatively estimate, and we all know this is a huge problem, to claim 44,000 lives in the United Kingdom, which is more than a claim by breast cancer, bowel cancer, prostate cancer, HIV and AIDS, and road traffic accidents put together. And we've already heard from Dr. Tedros that sepsis globally is a huge problem, with 6 million lives claimed every year from this condition, affecting upwards of 30 million people every year. Sepsis claims as many lives now, we estimate as tobacco. So we would all agree that sepsis is a huge problem, not only in women and newborns, but in our entire population. The evidence to support a public awareness campaign and the need for it is relatively small, but we did a deep dive review in the UK 
we undertook a study where we looked at cases that had been submitted to an expert review group by people in hospitals. And where those cases were reviewed, we found that in the emergency department, in 80% of cases, there was at least the infection present that precipitated their sepsis. And that more than 50% had sepsis or severe sepsis, using the sepsis 2 definitions or septic shock, at presentation in the emergency department. So we knew for the first time that sepsis was primarily a community-acquired problem in the UK. We then looked back at the patient journey and we identified that cohort of patients that should, in the expert review group's opinion, have presented to hospital earlier. And we looked at the reason for their delayed presentation, and it wasn't a bad family doctor, which we call GP here in the UK. It wasn't a bad admitting emergency department. It wasn't any other community services. It was because the patient and their family did not ask for help in 60% of cases. And we all know anecdotes and stories of patients who've deteriorated at home and who perhaps should have presented to the community, uh, to the hospital rather earlier. So how did we set about raising awareness? Well, firstly, it's important to examine our baseline. And we started in 2014 from a relatively healthy position compared with some other countries. I think this was a similar position to most rich countries in the Western Hemisphere, certainly, with around 40% of the public having heard of the word sepsis. Now, of course, this is not the acid test. The acid test would be, can you name five things that take a lot of lives in your country? But it's a starting point. I'd put mortality there, not to claim that we've seen huge improvements in mortality, but to reinforce the position that the different ways in which we measure mortality can give us artificial impressions of improvement. So this was the mortality at this time from our Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre database, which is obviously a very biased and skewed subgroup of patients. So we set about working with our government. We set about lobbying Parliament. We issued between 2014 and 2016 three annual reports with an all-party parliamentary group on sepsis, examining different facets of the healthcare system and making recommendations. We held receptions, but importantly, we worked with other agencies. There's a regulatory body of both our government and our national health service in the UK called the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. And we worked with them to produce a report which made strong recommendations for stakeholders, including NHS England. And we worked with NHS England to produce their report and to produce their national action plan, which in the wake of the WHO resolution on sepsis, we are reviewing and updating for the next two years. But then something really big happened. Little William Mead died just after his first birthday and just before Christmas two years ago. William's mum had made 21 separate calls to the healthcare system, all of which were largely ignored. And the media went crazy over William. How unjust that a little healthy boy should have fallen foul to sepsis after his mother kept asking for help in one of the most developed healthcare systems in the world. So we learned that working with the media was the key to engaging the public. We worked with organizations such as the British Broadcasting Company, who became very interested in sepsis, and even our tabloid press. And I would counsel that we don't need to go only to broadsheets to get public awareness out there. We have to engage different demographics. And this is one of our tabloids who, in their own words, were on a crusade against sepsis. So by 2016, we now had 67% of the public aware of sepsis, but there were still one in three people who weren't. 
mortality measured a different way with the study I showed earlier, that deep dive review, seemed to be a national mortality of 30%. But looking at the best healthcare systems in the world and their response to sepsis, we knew we had to get better. The Secretary of State for Health, our health minister, became interested in sepsis, largely as a result of the little boy who died. And he admitted that we as a healthcare system were totally inadequate at spotting sepsis. So he initiated a number of strategies. The first was unrelated to health public awareness, which is beginning to incentivize hospitals to deliver better sepsis care. But then we worked together to disseminate a large number of resources. We sent out 600,000 safety netting cards to parents of newborn children across England and Wales. These were included as cards, as fridge magnets, and as safety netting tools in the personal health record that all parents were given for their child, where their child's progress through height and weight charts and their vaccination schedules are recorded. And the key was to empower people to present to healthcare in the context of an infection if they had any of the given symptoms in their child. But the wider message, and a further one million posters were sent out that empowered the public to just ask, could this be sepsis? So the context is, the public know what an infection feels like. If an infection feels very much worse than it's ever felt before, they contact the healthcare system and they ask, could this be sepsis? And we have the support of the public health teams in England, the Royal Colleges in England behind this. And the perceived risk of an increase in traffic of the worried well patients to emergency departments and family doctors was not seen. So we set out again to examine whether people were now aware of sepsis, and actually the improvements were modest. We still had not quite one in three, but just over one in four of our members of the public who had not heard of the word sepsis. But what was interesting is that they now knew that sepsis was a medical emergency. So those who were aware of sepsis, 75% of them were aware that they had to act quickly. And the context was, in, the, in comparison with heart attack and stroke, how quickly would you act? Mortality measured a different way. These are now from our coded data, suggesting that our mortality rates are around 18%, certainly in England. So where now for public awareness? Well, we don't have millions of euros to conduct an internet, uh, to conduct a national traditional awareness campaign using television advertising, radio advertising, and print medium advertising. But we do have a lot of bright yellow vans across the United Kingdom. And soon every one of these 20,000 vans will be promoting messaging, highlighting the importance of sepsis, highlighting sepsis as a medical emergency, and reinforcing to the public that if they ask the question, could it be sepsis, they may well save lives. Similarly, we have out-of-hours community doctors' cars. And again, it's free advertising that we can harness and use. But we need to do so much more than that. Television companies will donate advertising space. Outdoor signage companies will also, if asked, donate advertising space, particularly if we have government and non-government organizations such as Royal College support behind the messaging. So we put in England the NHS logo on, and suddenly the companies that own the bus shelters, the signage above motorways, start to say, yes, we will help you. Working with corporates like HSBC Bank. What I'm saying here is that what we need to do as an international community is to use the resources available to us. One of the most cost-effective bits of advertising we've had in the United Kingdom 
was to use traditional television soap operas. So this is a medical drama that the BBC screen, and every week this has 5.1 million viewers on average. Because we had government support, because we had the public health teams behind this messaging, we were able to speak to the producers, to send some posters, and for 13 successive episodes, we had subliminal messaging to the public in the main scenes of the, of the soap opera, empowering them to just ask, could this be sepsis? So the messaging is that together we can save a significant number of lives. In England, because we are now a devolved organization, so we have to work separately across Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. But in England, we estimate we can save a further 14,000 lives just by heightening public awareness. Together, we will be able to save a million lives. And some people might have noticed that the symptoms that we use in these safety netting cards are indeed for an advanced stage of sepsis. But we have to get the balance right. We have to make sure that the public health teams are supported, the Royal Colleges are supported. I see our global raising of public awareness as an iterative program of awareness raising. And once we ensure that sepsis is in the public's mindset, as for example, meningitis is, we can start to work on the messaging, to hone it down, and to bring people in at an earlier stage. The danger, if we get this wrong, is to flood emergency departments with the worried well. And we can't allow that to happen because we will compromise our credibility immediately. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Ron. Um, we have time for a few questions. And one of the questions that was raised from India is how does your campaign emphasize hand washing and uh, appropriate use of antimicrobials and antimicrobial stewardship through public engagement? So those, those are separate campaigns which are also operated by Public Health England. Public Health England, we sign up to the, um, the WHO hand hygiene campaign. We have separate organizations, Antibiotic Action and other professional bodies in the UK who work with Public Health England to engage the public in using and trying to access antimicrobials responsibly. So these messages, in my view, are entirely important, um, entirely compatible with our messaging, but they're operated by different agencies. Okay, thank you. Another question is, um, can you give us a little idea on how best to use social media in these campaigns? For me, this is about thinking about the demographics we need to access. And we know, for example, we talked about broadsheets. Broadsheets tend to be read by the more educated people and the people in their 40s and older. Tabloids tend to be accessed by a rather younger demographic. The beauty of social media is that it is hugely inexpensive, if not cost-neutral to use, and it covers a wide range of demographics. Facebook, certainly in the UK, is used by people in their 30s and 40s. Twitter, by people in their 30s. Instagram, Snapchat, Pinterest, and so forth, by people in their 20s, 30s, and even younger. We have to remember that to engage the younger demographic builds our future in sepsis. So it's, social media, to me, is an absolutely vital part of campaigning. Yeah, Ron, um, you mentioned um, the one of a question again that came through. You mentioned the issue of balance and messages to avoid flooding uh, the department with the worried well versus the critically ill. And um, have you been able to achieve that balance in the UK? You think, or uh, what? What work needs to be done there? 
So I think we have, but I think as was pointed out in one of the questions, we've erred towards the more advanced stages of sepsis with the symptomatology that we're communicating. And the importance of this, this, this campaign would have fallen flat on its face, as we say here in England, if we had not had the support of the public health teams and the Royal Colleges behind it. What's been absolutely crucial to this is to do this with the engagement and support of the Royal College for Pediatrics and Child Health, the Royal College for General Practitioners, and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. There were some concerns raised when we used, shall we say, softer symptoms in the public messaging that this would indeed happen. So our strategy has been to get the colleges on board using the more advanced symptomatology. Once we demonstrate that this does not flood emergency departments with the worried well, then we can look to reevaluate the symptoms that we communicate to the public. Great. Uh, one more question here. Do you think engaging primary healthcare workers like health extension workers can improve prevention and diagnosis? And do you have evidence supporting this? So we don't have evidence supporting this. We do have. So in, in, the, in the UK, the uh, health professionals working outside hospitals, they largely the emergency medical teams, the general practitioners, the community-based midwives, nurses, and health visitors, and of course, those working in residential care facilities, mental health facilities, and nursing homes. And it's important that we try to engage all of these people. Sometimes, if there's an overarching professional regulatory body, it's relatively easier to engage. An example is in the UK, there's no regulatory agency for nursing homes, so we have to work with nursing homes individually, and then it becomes a clinical local champion driving care. But it's absolutely important, yes. Yeah, there, there are two questions here, I think, that, um, um, that uh, goes to the crux of the matter. Uh, one question um, is, how do you monitor success of your campaign and how in, the, uh, um, in, in this um, uh, sort of venture do you monitor uh, antimicrobial use or misuse? So the second part of the question is very easy to address. Again, this is done through our mandatory antimicrobial surveillance programs who monitor um, antimicrobial consumption, who uh, also monitor, of course, antimicrobial uh, uh, resistance. Now, the commission incentive that I briefly mentioned that's largely unrelated to public awareness ensures that we monitor not only how quickly hospitals spot sepsis and deliver care to patients with sepsis, but also um, how well they address antimicrobial resistance. So again, different agencies, but we have to ensure the messages are entirely compatible. How will we demonstrate benefit? Well, of course, we would like to demonstrate benefit in improving outcomes. We'd like to be able to demonstrate that uh, mortality is falling. We'd like to be able to demonstrate that the process of care is improving, that the screening of patients is improving, their delivery of antimicrobials is improving, and patients are presenting to healthcare at an earlier stage in their illness. We're only going to be able to do that through a national robust data system such as a registry. But in the meantime, we'll continue with our public surveying and polling, assessing public's knowledge of sepsis. Uh, thanks very much, Ron. If you can stick around for the question and answer period um, after the uh, uh, final presentations. Uh, there are some more questions. Please, I encourage everyone to keep uh, the questions coming in. Thanks very much, Ron. The next speaker I'd like to introduce is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Molno. Um, Liz, as we know her, is an honorary professor of pediatrics and ex-head of the Department 
at the College of Medicine in Blantyre, Malawi. Uh, Liz went to Malawi in 1974, and except for 10 years back in the UK, in Liverpool, uh, where she worked in oncology and was clinical director of the Royal Liverpool Children's Hospital Emergency Department, she and her husband have worked in Malawi uh, throughout their ent entire professional lives. Uh, she is also the founder of the APLS in the UK and Europe, and the uh, ETAT, that's the Emergency uh, Triage uh, Assessment and Treatment Course, for the WHO. In the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, uh, Central Hospital in Blantyre, she developed the emergency unit and was instrumental in starting a palliative care service, the first of its kind in Africa for children um, and on, uh, um, uh, with oncology um, uh, issues. More recently, she is now part of a team developing low-cost, robust, reliable medical equipment for low-income settings. And uh, her research interests have been very wide, but does include, to a large extent, infectious diseases, oncology, and emergency care. I can think of no one more qualified to speak on the topic of challenges of sepsis care and research in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'll turn it over to Liz now. Thank you, Tex, and uh, thank you for asking me to join you this afternoon. And I feel very honored to be part of this. I've been asked to talk about challenges of care and research in sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm going to talk about the uh, research part first, though I really feel that care and research needs to go hand in hand. And it's really clinical trials in children in resource-poor settings. And I suppose the first question is, how essential are they? And I think they really are, because for, for our care of children to be relevant, it has to be evidence-based. And that evidence has to come from local uh, studies. There's no question that there's an enormous disease uh, burden out there. And the problems are certainly different from elsewhere. You couldn't study malaria somewhere else, uh, in a high-income country. You couldn't mimic the feasibility of what's available in somewhere where there is very little. So there are lots of potential interventions, but what we need to do is do some trials to prove what is really best and give that evidence to our policymakers so that they can improve the care of children. Of course, Research must be ethical. It's got to be of the highest quality, but it also has to be appropriate and it has to be relevant. We must remember that children in low-income countries are doubly vulnerable. They're vulnerable because they're immature. They don't make their own decisions. It's parents who make their decisions, but also because they're very poor. And so, again, we must be stringently, stringently ethical in how we go about the research that we do. But I think sometimes we forget that it may be unethical not to do studies, because there are studies that are going to benefit children. And so we need to, to balance, really, the harm that can be done against the imperative of doing good. We sometimes work in difficult places and 
it can be difficult. The war, refugee camps, I think of Ebola, and yet some of the best and most interesting studies have come out of Ebola, where unique ways of having to go about a study in an emergency area with vaccines that hadn't been tried before were carried out and carried out very efficiently, effectively. Perhaps more we have uh, thinking now, certainly, about natural uh, disasters. We have political crises. We have civil war. And we need to think about whether it's, uh, whether it's possible and whether it's appropriate and whether it's useful to do studies in places such as those. And who chooses what will be studied? Because the trial has to be designed, and very often we find that the trials are designed outside the resource-low resource country and then brought to that place by somebody who may not be fully aware of what's going on and what the problems are. And I was thinking, for instance, about if you look at the number of people with HIV infection, the huge burden is in Africa. And yet, if you look at where the studies have been designed, funded, and uh, led, are very much from North America and from Europe. So we need partnerships. And partnerships are really important. We need to be equal. That doesn't mean to say we're the same. It's a bit like a marriage. Each person is different, but brings to together, they make something stronger and better and more efficient. It's, so we need to think of it in terms of ideas. The ideas should come from both sides. And that means very early communication before protocols are written. Responsibilities, different but shared. Ownership, I think, is really important. Early decisions need to be made about what data will be shared, how the funding works, where the authorship lies, and who the principal investigators are. If we don't give people from low-income areas the uh, opportunity to, be, to learn and then to become principal investigators, they will never be able to get the funds themselves to be able to initiate studies. So I think this is a wonderful partnership where we can share and look after each other because the practicalities are often what the local person will be more familiar with and will be able to help the whole team to negotiate. And these are several. They must be able to say whether some study that is being suggested is relevant and will it be acceptable even though it is relevant? Is it feasible given the situation in which People are thinking of doing a study and 
are there sufficient staff? Can you add in some more staff? Can they do more than just the study so that it helps the rest of the department? What sort of support is going to be needed? Data management, possibly, or pharmacy, or laboratory? Are drugs available? And if so, are they consistently available? Then what lab tests can, can't be done? What should be added? All of which the local person will be the expert. Then the ethics has to go through several hoops because usually if the funding is coming from uh, a high-income country, then wherever that comes from, that university has to have its ethical clearance but so does the local committee. And the local committee is really important. It's going to require capacity building locally, so that should be built in. The informed consent has to be appropriate to the people that you are trying to inform and consent with. They may require a data safety management board. You may need to go through the Poisons and Pharmacy Board of the country. Most countries really don't like samples to go abroad unless it's absolutely important. If something can be, if, it, for instance, a laboratory test cannot be done locally, the first question would be, can you train somebody locally to be able to do it? If you can't, then of course the sample will go elsewhere. But there seem, needs to be what's called a material transfer agreement, a very carefully documented uh, transfer, which will probably mean that the samples need to come back again at the end. What about the overheads? Universities require overheads. That's the way they pay for things. But if it's all coming through a high-income country, then how do you share any of that with the institution locally where the work is being done. So that again needs to be thought of very early on. Local academics, well like academics elsewhere of course, are looking for higher qualifications and remember that their promotion and therefore their income will depend on how well they do just as much as in the high-income country. So we need to think when we do a study, can we build in PhDs for both sides of this partnership? Masters, perhaps teach skills in trial management, skills in writing papers, and being fair about authorship. I would say again, do try and get the authorship before the study starts. It can be a painful business if there are disagreements later. And there really should be no gift authorships. And when it comes to funding, where are the funds held? This can be difficult. And one big challenge is that if they are big funds, sometimes it's difficult locally because it requires quite a lot of expertise 
to be able to manage funds, particularly as different donors want their funds uh, reported, their financial reports in different ways. And so that again has to be thought through carefully. And who's doing the monitoring? Is it locally? Is it overseas? Is it a combination? Can monitoring be taught to people locally? And then the data, where is it kept? And most local institutions would say it should be with us. So research is important, but if we don't do it, one of the, perhaps a big challenge of research is to put it into policy and then policy into practice. And I think by far the easiest bit is the research and by far the hardest making what you know is going to be useful, putting it into the hands of people and teaching them actually to use it. So when we think of our research, I think we need to think of it through the whole pathway of where it's going to land up or where we hope it's going to be helpful to both to our staff, but more importantly, to our children. And then how does research fit into the clinical services? I'm a clinician from top to toe, and to me, research really must benefit all the children that we're looking after. Research has to enhance care, not detract from it. Sometimes it's easy for a research unit or a search team that have money to pull out of a clinical uh, service the very best of their staff because they can pay them more, they can give them better uh, hours, and then it's difficult to get them back into the system. So is there some way of getting around that? And when we think of caring for children with sepsis, there are really a host of things we need to Think about. And when we think about it with research as well, we can say this is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Yes, we have some diagnostics, but are there some that we could obtain that could benefit the wider group of children we care for? Do we need any of these for this study that could be added in? There may be some routine ones that can be done, but there may be more that we need. What sort of technology is available? In some places, of course, there's very little. Are there infusion pumps and syringe pumps? Have you even got glucose sticks? Or do you have a CPAP machine? All of these could be left behind after a study and can benefit the department and the children that are being looked after. You can't rely on a service to provide medications necessarily. So even the ones that might be taken for granted elsewhere have to be thought of. Remember the staff, what numbers, what experience. Have you got space or are you two to the bed or more? Are there appropriate local protocols and if not, can you help with them? Is there good documentation? And there's mobile. You can perhaps use a mobile phone for communications. I think TPR is something we all know about. It's a uh, 
sign of our vital signs, and it's vital to to any unit. And I think research, practice, and teaching go hand in hand. They're all equally important and at times equally challenging, but together form the vital signs of a living health service. Thank you. Thank you very much, Liz, for this presentation. And uh, we do have time, and we have uh, quite a few questions that have come through. Um, and uh, one can very well understand that many of our colleagues work in areas in the world with uh, limited resources, as um, you have. And um, uh, this is where most of the issues uh, for children uh, uh, arise. One of the mm -hmm. um, questions that uh, uh, have been asked is, um, uh, you know, you have the experience of authorships, etc. Okay, mm -hmm. you mentioned um, the local should be should benefit from it. Clearly, mm -hmm. um, you um, are well versed in this area, and uh, I guess you have certain level of gravitas. What advice would you give for people who are just starting out and now trying to form partnerships? Okay, well, you know, everybody needs. Uh, authorship, particularly early on in their career. But most pieces of work will produce more than one paper. And I think the person who's been the major lead will, will uh, take the lead and be the first author on perhaps the first paper. But then there will probably be a second, a third, um, maybe even a fourth paper that comes out. And those can certainly be shared so that people have um, a chance to be and and to write the main part of the paper. I think it's a nice idea to have the first and the last author from the different institutions, and that too can be switched around. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, one of the uh, questions would have raised is, what are the challenges in low- and middle-income countries for diagnosing or recognizing sepsis and low birth weight infants and premies when you don't have the great support, lab supports, et cetera, um, uh, that um, uh, high-income countries may, may have? I think it's really difficult. And uh, I think what happens is that it is over-diagnosed. I think that's what happens with all the sort of syndromic treatment that goes on. Because the trouble is that uh, in a high-income country where you've got your laboratory help, even though you may start with a lot of antibiotics, you can pretty soon draw them back when your tests all come back negative. Whereas if you don't have those tests, you have to continue for the full time. Uh, and if you don't, and, of course, people may stop too early, and you may stop on the wrong child. So I think it is a tricky one. I don't think there's an easy answer to it. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, another question. You spoke about the ethics or ethical research and uh, engaging ethics uh, um, groups. Mm -hmm. it was, and the questions have come in different ways. That uh, the issue of ethics varies with countries and what may uh, bother my uh, ethics uh, sort of committee here in Vancouver would be of very little relevance or be a non-issue to the ethics committee in Uganda and vice versa. Um, 
And when you have trials with uh, partners like this, how do you manage to bridge those issues? I think the sort of basic principles are the same, uh, whichever ethics board you are um, presenting your work to. But there are one or two things that certainly are different. For instance, the sort of informed consent that uh, may be acceptable in a high-income country, in fact, is insisted on is pages long, whereas I think that would be totally inappropriate for somewhere where you may even have an illiterate uh, mother. And so that needs to be, obviously have everything in it that should be, but it needs to be simplified. Some people, for instance, have used uh, pictures to try and confirm that people have understood what is being said. You may have to go back and have a two-stage informed consent. So that sort of thing I do think varies with the different countries in which you are. But the basic principles are the same. Yeah. Um, I'll take one final question now. I'll give to Liz. And then, um, Liz, if you can stick around after, hopefully we'll mm -hmm. have more time for discussion. One of the mm -hmm. questions that um, I just posed to us is um, that uh, there are many individuals who have research questions in uh, resource-limited areas. But if funding mm -hmm. for pragmatic trials are needed to address some of these research questions, as you know, the randomized clinical trial may be you know, labor-intensive, mm -hmm. long, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, what are the opportunities for funding in pragmatic trial? What is your experience with that? How difficult is it? I, I, I can sympathize with whoever uh, put in that question. Um, but I think there is. I think we need to look around. If you... Uh, for instance, USAID, WHO have, have small pots locally that can be uh, given out by the local uh, USAID team or WHO, etc. And those are ones to go for. There are uh, some like uh, Lurdle uh, Foundation also give out um, smallish uh, amounts of money for research. So you do have to hunt, but I think it's worth it. And uh, I think it's on some of these small, actually some of these smaller studies are really so important for the local policy that, I, you know, they, and also they're a way of getting somebody into the habit of, of doing studies. Because I think what really makes care exciting is thinking about how you can make it better and then trying to put into practice what your thoughts are to see whether you're right about what you were hoping would be successful. So whoever asked that question, don't give up. Keep, keep trying. You will find money, even though it's not always easy. Okay. Thank you very much, Liz, and I hope you can stick around um, for a little while longer. Thank um, you. The final present presenter on this session is uh, Dr. Conrad Reinhardt, who is a recognized champion as an international champion for sepsis. He's the chairman of the Global Sepsis Alliance and the key initiator of the World Sepsis Day. He's also a member and was chairman of the International Sepsis Forum and a member of the Council of the World Federation of, of Societies of Intensive and Critical Care Medicine. In Germany, he's a member of the German National Academy of Science Leopoldina and Chairman of the Sepsis Foundation. 
He was the founding president of the German Sepsis Society and its president for eight years, ending in 2009. As a speaker of the nationwide German Sepsis uh, Network, the SEPNET, he initiated landmark studies on the efficacy and safety of therapeutic approaches in sepsis, as well as the epidemiology of sepsis in Germany. Um, he is going to be the final speaker in this session and will be addressing the topic, the challenges in achieving the goals of the World Health Assembly of the World Health Organization Sepsis Resolution. I'll turn it off to Con over to Conrad now. Thanks, uh, Tech, for this kind introduction and hello to everybody. Indeed, uh, the WHO resolution on sepsis comes along with a huge number of opportunities, but also of uh, challenges. And the adoption of this uh, resolution on May this year upon a proposal by quite a number of countries like Australia, Austria, Colombia, Costa Rica, Estonia, Ireland, etc., under the leadership of the German Ministry of Health, really means a major step and giant leap in the fight against sepsis because it will help us to overcome the poor recognition, awareness, and knowledge on sepsis, and it will foster the improvement of sepsis prevention, recognition, and management worldwide. The great thing about this resolution is the fact that it acknowledges quite a number of important facts on sepsis, such as the burden of sepsis is high with approximately 6 million deaths, and also that most of which of them are preventable. And this will help to get and to overcome the poor knowledge on sepsis. And probably the current numbers mean a gross underestimation of the real and true burden of sepsis. And that's why it's important that also this resolution asks to assess the true burden of sepsis. And it's an underestimation, very likely, because the data where this number are derived from come from epidemiological studies. All of them have been done in those high-income countries that you see in black on these slides. Whereas we are all aware of the fact that not only for HIV, but for all other infections, the prevalence and incidence is much higher in those areas of the world where more than 80% of mankind live. And thus also the burden of sepsis is much higher, very likely in these regions of the world. And to achieve the goal to assess the true sepsis on burden of sepsis will require joint efforts by all sepsis stakeholders, jointly with WHO and the authors also of the Global Burden of Disease Report. And what the resolution proposed and urges its member states is to apply and to improve the use of the international classification of diseases system to better establish the prevalence of sepsis. And indeed, this is badly needed because currently sepsis is poorly coded in the ICD classification system, even in countries 
where coding of sepsis is relevant because of billing reasons such as in the US and in Germany. And interestingly, less than 50% of sepsis cases were coded in the ICD coding system in the US between 2009 and 2014. And by a study funded by the CDC, which looked into electronic health records, came up with the information that 5.9% of all admissions to these hospitals had sepsis, neither of them, and, and the mortality rate uh, over time between 2009 did not change, whereas only 1.3% of these sepsis patients were coded in 2009 in the ICD coding system uh, compared to 2009. This number increased to 2.5%, but still did not reach this 5.9% which that were, became obvious looking into the electronic health records. Interestingly, the mortality rate decreased if you look on the number of, which were ICD coded, but it remains unchanged. Uh, in those documented in the real world in the electronic health records. So overall, this means that more than 1.6 million cases of sepsis occur every year, which in the U.S. which go along with 260,000 sepsis deaths. Likewise, there are similar data, which are, again, in this case, derived from patient records rather than ICD documentation and using sepsis-3 definitions as in the uh, report from the U.S. before, it turned out that in Sweden, 780 patients per 100,000 persons had been treated in these hospitals and the mortality rate was 7.4%. Ironically, only less than one-third of these patients were documented in the ICD coding system there. So when we want and need to come up with better numbers, we need uh, to improve the coding of sepsis in this system. Bloomberg, this news agency, according to this, new data came up uh, with a quote uh, that said American has a 27 billion sepsis crisis. So, and similar figures uh, are, have been documented for UK between 7. to 10.7 billion pounds and for Germany uh, it's in the range of 7.7 .7 billion euros. But again, the likelihood that it's much higher uh, is quite clear from the fact that also in these countries, sepsis is very likely strongly underestimated. And it's also very important that this resolution acknowledges that sepsis is a syndromic response to infection and the final common pathway to death from most infectious diseases. This helps to overcome this misconception and notion on sepsis that, for example, sepsis occurs only in the healthcare setting 
which you will find in the media, or that it only results from unclean care in the, in the hospital setting, and that it's primarily caused by multi-resistant bacterial superbugs. It's great that it's mentioned that not only bacteria, but also fungi, viruses, parasites, such as malaria, may cause severe sepsis and septic uh, shock, and that it also often presents as a clinical deterioration of common and preventable infections, such as those of the respiratory, gastrointestinal, and urinary tract, or of wounds and skin. It's great that the resolution urges also member states to increase public awareness of sepsis, particularly among high-risk groups, to ensure not only prompt recognition, but also presentation for treatment. And it also mentions that it's important to engage in advocacy efforts to raise awareness of sepsis by promoting and supporting activities like the World Sepsis State. And doing this will help to improve the quality of sepsis prevention and care and support also the request for national action plans by sepsis advocates in every country and to make the public aware of this. And Sir Lyon Donaldson, who we quoted in this article, made the point that some very important clinical issues, some of them affecting life and death, stay largely in a backwater which is inhabited by academics and professionals and enthusiasts, dealt with very well. But he makes the point that the public and political space is a space in which sepsis needs to be in order for things to change. And this is the great opportunity that comes along with this WHO resolution, which has been broadly accepted also by the medical community worldwide, that this has made sepsis to a high priority for WHO. And indeed, the common knowledge on sepsis is very poor. This is a recent poll that we did in Germany representative among citizens with age above 60. And in this poll, almost 90% of patients have heard about sepsis, but nearly 30% of them thought that sepsis is caused by an allergic reaction. Over close to 60% thought that sepsis is diagnosed by a red line that gradually makes its way from the finger to the heart. Only 30% were aware of the fact that vaccination against certain infections may help to prevent sepsis, and almost one-third considered that sepsis is primarily caused by multi-resistant so-called killer bugs. And if we improve the knowledge on sepsis and the awareness on sepsis, it will help to increase adoption, the adoption rate for prevention, vaccination, and hygiene. And it will prompt lay people searching care in a timely manner and promotes the management of sepsis as an emergency, which clearly will save lives. So the awareness on sepsis was very high at the turn of at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, and still in the first half of last century, it was pretty high. 
but it dramatically declined, and this was detrimental, after the Surgeon General of the U.S. in 1972, based on the fact that crude mortality rate in the U.S. dramatically declined between 1900 and 1950-60, uh, said that the book of infectious diseases can now be closed. And as I said, the resulting decrease in awareness was detrimental because it decreased the understanding that promotion of prevention and management of infectious diseases is still badly needed. And how poor for many patients the sepsis care currently is even in countries with high incomes such as UK or Australia comes out now by a number of reports, in this case done by the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome on Death in UK in 2016, which called their report just say sepsis because they learned that in more than 60% of the death certificates, sepsis was not mentioned. And also in almost 50% of the doctoral notes, when patients were dismissed from the hospital, the word sepsis did not appear. But what is even worse, that they came to the conclusion that sepsis is a major cause of avoidable death in their hospitals. And this is true because almost 50% of the patients who came to the hospital in these more than 800 patients, sepsis was diagnosed not or only with delay in 44% of the patients. And uh, this resulted, of course, also uh, in a delay of antimicrobial therapy. And we know for sure that at least this results, any delay of one hour results in an increase of mortality by 2%. So the same came out of a similar report by the Clinical Excellence Commission in, in, in Wales, in, in New South Wales, in Australia, and also they identified sepsis as the main cause of preventable death. So that's why it's so important that this resolution urges its member states to develop training for all healthcare professionals on infection prevention and patient safety and on the importance of recognizing sepsis as a preventable and time-critical condition with urgent therapeutic needs. And indeed, families are no longer willing to accept poor quality of care. They stand up, they went to the public, and this made a difference in the US, in UK, and also in other countries. And as I mentioned before, most of, which of these steps from sepsis are uh, preventable. And that needs and helps us to understand that probably sepsis is the number one cause of preventable death, and this will help to trigger local and national quality initiatives we are so, which are so badly needed. And it's also great and helpful that the resolution urges its member states to develop national policies and processes to improve prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of sepsis, such as these regulations that were implemented up on 
the request of the Rory Stanton Foundation, who had lost their son unnecessarily, and they were implemented upon an order of Governor Cuomo from New York. And in the meanwhile, more than 100,000 patients in the new state of New York have been treated along these um, regulations, and this resulted and underlined again the timeliness that is necessary uh, to treat uh, sepsis because who received their antimicrobial therapy within the first hour at a significant uh, lower death rate than those patients where both the bundle implementation uh, and the donation and the administration of antibiotics was uh, delayed. And those patients who were not treated and included uh, in these protocols had a slight increase in mortality, whereas in the other patient population, mortality uh, decreased. And there's data again from UK that suggests that with increasing compliance in a stepwise from 10 to 20 to 30 percent, annual savings can be made, which range in the UK between 83 and 24.9 million pounds. And to finish, when you look on the fact that sepsis mortality differs in magnitude and trends between countries and continents, and even in high-income countries like Australia, England, and US, mortality is different and much lower, for example, as in Germany, and even much lower uh, in, in Brazil with a mortality rate of 50.7%, or Turkey with a mortality rate of 60.6%. And it must no longer be and depend on the chance to contract or to survive sepsis may no longer depend on the country or continent where we are born. And this resolution will help us to overcome these discrepancies between in the quality of healthcare and prevention and treatment of sepsis. And to achieve these goals, I think foremost, it's important to implement national sepsis plans in all parts of the world. And it still needs increased efforts by sepsis advocates everywhere at every place and the involvement of all stakeholders dedicated to infection prevention and control. And foremost, the involvement of all United Nations member states and all bodies that are dedicated to global health and patient safety under the leadful leadership of the WHO. And that's why we are so grateful that we have this resolution now. So I would like to invite you to join our vision for a world free of sepsis and to join the fight against sepsis and to share this vision. Thank you for your kind attention. Okay. Thank you very much, Conrad. Um, we are now going to have a period of discussion where we will have uh, um, Bernadetta, Liz, and Conrad available to answer some questions. And Bernadette, what I'd like to do is start uh, first with you. And one of the questions that was posed is, how do countries and uh, uh, individuals uh, participate in uh, trying to achieve the 
the goals of the um, UN um, resolution on sepsis. Thank you very much, Tex. And thank you for those who asked this question. Uh, I think that, first of all, countries um, should do their best to look carefully at the resolution and uh, assessing where they are in terms of uh, what the resolution uh, asks them to put in place. So we know very well that countries are at different um, progress uh, in these regards. We have to also uh, be reminded that this resolution is very ambitious and it really uh, touches upon different aspects which really are very comprehensive in, in covering all the risks and consequences of uh, sepsis, uh, mismanagement and lack of prevention. So um, I think it's really a very ambitious resolution for countries, especially those who have limited resources. So I think that countries should really firstly uh, engage themselves on uh, accomplishing uh, what the World Health Assembly are, urges them to do. And do this uh, in collaboration with WHO, our country offices, but also with the many stakeholders uh, which are represented at this Congress and were mentioned earlier. One very effective thing that countries can do, I think, is to campaign as uh, demonstrated in other health areas and also according to examples in the field of sepsis, such as the example of UK uh, previously presented by Ron. Uh, campaigning, uh, when campaigns are really uh, supported and fostered by the government, they are the most successful. And I think that uh, they can also integrate and inter interact with other campaigns, as it was highlighted earlier. Uh, for instance, in terms of infection prevention, the, the integration with uh, the hand hygiene campaigns that are in place in many countries and very successful, or vaccination campaigns, etc. Uh, I think that this can be a mutual reinforcement. Uh, individuals, I think that... Uh, there are several uh, very important high-level experts um, in the field uh, around the world. Uh, their expertise is needed for helping countries and also WHO and, in, and the international community to advance. Uh, and I really hope that they will be available uh, to contribute, and I know that they are. So I think that individuals having expertise uh, are crucial. Uh, at the same time, I think that experience is also super important. Uh, this can be the experience of patients, families. In the field of patient safety, we know how crucial this is to move things forward and to what extent uh, patients and families can um, dramatically contribute to uh, progressing awareness and also action uh, in many health-related uh, fields. And sepsis, I think, is one of the most important where they could uh, contribute and there are experiences around the world. Okay, thank you. Bernadette, I'll come back to you in a little while. Uh, one question here for you, Conrad. Um, can you uh, comment um, 
briefly on uh, one question was how good is QSOFA for diagnosis? And secondly, the issue of you mentioned of ICD codes, what are the moves um, uh, that are available now or what, what um, ideas to rectify that problem that you mentioned about um, not coding problems? Yeah. Before I come to this, I just wanted to fully support what Bernard Detta has said. So I think it's important that in every country that um, you have to or you should try to create coalitions because sepsis is a multidisciplinary challenge. Um, you have to convene all colleagues who are active in infectious diseases and in intensive care medicine uh, do come together and to join also with uh, families and patient survivors. So these models, like in the UK and in part in the US and also in part in Germany, are most effective to reach out to the national governments and to help them to understand uh, that really nat national policies are needed. And uh, to come to uh, your questions, so we clearly have made a statement a statement uh, by the GSA that uh, although the sepsis, that new definitions, I think, uh, are a step forward in the right direction, the idea that uh, the cool sofa can replace other and so far very ex uh, successfully used uh, early warning signs uh, of sepsis, uh, such as uh, changes in temperature, such as changes in respiration rate, just as leukocytosis, uh, just uh, as mental alteration, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they, they should still be used for early identification both of infection and uh, in, in impending uh, sepsis. And one never must wait for two organ dysfunctions before you think about sepsis. So one organ dysfunction, be it uh, mental alteration, be it increase in respiration uh, uh, rate, be it uh, hypotension, uh, should alarm and think uh, of, of sepsis. So this is the message uh, uh, to this. And as to the ICD uh, coding system, so there are 20, 30 sepsis codes, uh, and uh, sepsis is not coded as well and appropriate as long as not every doctor and who treats a patient in the hospital and every nurse not document this in the in the in the, in the patient uh, records and also the so-called coders need to be trained to better understand uh, what the signs of sepsis is and which patients need to be coded as sepsis. Okay, thank you very much. Bernadette, I'd like to go back to you. Uh, this is a question that um, was raised uh, concerning vaccines. I know Anu Radna cannot be here, but maybe you can um, give us some idea on this. Uh, the question was posed is, uh, there seems to be a dynamic tension between uh, those who uh, are promoting vaccine the, and those who are pro-vaccines and those who are anti-vaccines. And it seems as if... Um, uh, the the 
participants stated that it seems in low and middle income countries that we uh, do not have enough vaccines for individuals, whereas in high income countries, we have pushback uh, against vaccines. So how do you bridge this gap or what, what uh, programs are in place for this? Uh, so I, I just wanted to say uh, thank you for the question uh, and apologies if I won't be complete enough perhaps because it's not actually my area of expertise. I think that um, from the one hand as highlighted uh, there are um, a good percentage of people in especially in high income countries um, who are not favorable uh, or against vaccines and I, I think in these cases there are several strategies uh, I think it's really important to highlight what are the public health benefits and provide really specific uh, public health uh, data on, on the benefits for, of vaccines uh, for the community, the entire community in addition to individuals uh, also, I think that um, there is an issue about uh, the myth of adverse events of vaccines and lack of uh, reliable information. So dispelling this myth is important and provide uh, very precise and, and uh, reliable data on mortality and disability caused by uh, those infections that are targeted by vaccines. Um, and also, um, it seems that presenting cases uh, of specific patient cases of non-vaccinated children uh, to parents um, can be um, who have contracted, obviously, uh, the, 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 the infection and uh, suffered of the consequences uh, can be effective, but there are also studies which show the, the, the reverse, so not always effective. I think that the bottom line is is about communications and careful discussion and education uh, um, with parents and the community. Uh, but I think, uh, on the other hand, uh, one of the issues also in developing countries is not only the availability of vaccines, but also uh, the easy access, uh, the systems in place for vaccinations. And this also applies sometimes to high-income countries. Uh, so when vaccinations are made mandatory, I think that careful strategic approach should be placed also to establish the right systems, uh, the right uh, and easy access to these vaccinations to encourage uh, participation and compliance. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, access to vaccines uh, in uh, low- and middle-income countries, I think Gavi is really doing a tremendous amount of work in these regards, and I think that um, our colleague uh, could be uh, maybe uh, addressed uh, by email, um, and I'm sure that... Uh, uh, Anurad, Anurad will will provide feedback on this, and of course, uh, WHO's uh, work on vaccines uh, is also relevant. And several pieces of information about uh, campaigning for vaccines and access to vaccines for low middle income countries can be found on the WHO website. Okay, great. Um, I have one final uh, quick uh, question for Liz here. Um, Liz. Mm -hmm. um, 
one of the issues um, was raised is the challenges in uh, for health acquired infections in low and middle income countries. And I know you've had some experience with that. What advice would you give people? You mean people who have traveled and have acquired? No, in hospitals. What um, advice? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a big problem. Nosocomial infections are a really big problem. And, of course, they tend to be some of the nastier bugs, which are resistant to all one's first, even second-line uh, antibiotics. And I think we really have to go back to basics. We have to be sure that everybody is hand-washing. We need to be very careful with all our instrumentation and all our particularly invasive tests that we do. One thing is space. So often uh, a neonatal unit or something will have lots of little children all uh, cheek by jowl. And if that is, there were bound to get it infections. So it's, I think, looking after some of the simple things. And that requires not only clinicians, but it also requires our administrators to be aware that the problems can only be solved with their assistance as well. Okay. Now, thanks very much. Um, so in closing, I'd like to thank uh, the audience. They have been very much uh, Engage, and I would like to thank everyone for the questions and the um, sort of uh, uh, comments they have made. I'd like to thank all the speakers, and um, I'd like to thank also uh, our sponsors who've made uh, this uh, this uh, possible. Um, what we'd like to do is uh, encourage uh, everyone to become a supporter of uh, the World um, Sepsis Day. And uh, you can engage on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, um, et cetera. Um, you can go on the website on World Sepsis Day or the Global Sepsis Alliance website and uh, sign up to uh, be part of this great movement forward. We'd also like, I'd also like to thank our sponsors uh, who has made uh, this uh, possible. And I'd also like to thank our colleagues worldwide who have signed, signed up. I understand that we've had uh, individuals from 130 countries, and in many regions of the world, we know uh, recently there are dangers, there are hurricanes, earthquakes, there are wars, etc. And our thoughts uh, go out to our colleagues um, uh, in, in these areas of the world. So thank you very much. And with this, I'd like to close this first session. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsor, the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. We will continue with the second session, Maternal Sepsis, on October 5th. This Congress is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please consider donating. See you in two weeks.